The words I'd like to direct your attention to this morning are found in the book of Colossians. We'll be finishing up our study of Colossians this morning, looking at verses chapter, sorry, verses seven through eighteen of chapter four. Colossians four, seven through eighteen. Tychicus will tell you about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. And I've sent him to you for this very purpose. that You may know how we are. He may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who's one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you've received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they've been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature, and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Areopolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. And give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read, read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you've received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Please pray with me one more time. Father, we're just even meditating on the songs that we've just sung, the testimonies that we've heard. Lord, as even we recall our own life before we knew you. We are just so thankful for the hope that you give. And I pray that even through this message this morning as we look at Colossians 4 and finish up this book, Lord, that you would give hope to the people here. Lord, that you would strengthen hearts and that you would transform us, cause us truly to become more like your Son, Work in power and in the Holy Spirit. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week, I start, began the message just by listing a number of statistics, uh, discouraging statistics at that. And the, one of those that stood out to me was the statistic that only 18% of Americans have only one trusted friend or no trusted friends in their lives. And I think this is a tragic statistic because something that is so core to our humanity is something that some people have no experience of. I mean, friendship has been something that throughout history people have recognized is, is central to our thriving as individuals. When I used to teach Greek history, um, one of my favorite texts that I would teach on was uh, 
The Nicomachean Ethics by Aristotle. It was a book that he wrote to his son, Nicomachus, really explaining to him how to live the best life according to Greek philosophy. And in this work, Aristotle addresses the importance of friendship. And he explains that friendship really comes in three different forms. First is just that friendship that's based upon utility. When people expect to derive some benefit from another. And he says that these friendships tend to be shallow and easily dissolved. The next kind of friendship are those based upon pleasure. And these are friendships that are based on mutual attraction. Uh, uh, you see something valuable in another, another person or that attracts you. could be their appearance, their humor, or some other intrinsic quality that they have. But these second level friendships also can easily just fall apart whenever whatever benefit they offer just has gone away. They're only as lasting as that attraction or that quality lasts. The third type of friendship or true friendship is that which is based upon goodness. The, the term he uses is eudaimonia, which basically means, can be translated holiness. It's the highest good, the greatest good. Um, this is the friendship that's based on shared convictions or ultimate values, shared views of morality or worldview, politics, family. And it's this highest kind of friendship is what he terms as brotherly love. There's no desire to get anything from another person or even to seek a certain response. You love that person simply because you have shared convictions. What is most core about you is also what is most central about them. And so the focus is not on what you can derive from them, but rather how you can help that other person to achieve their ends. And he describes such friendship as, quote, a single soul dwelling in two bodies, unquote. And really what Aristotle's uh, describing here in this third level of friendship is what the Bible would term fellowship. Or koinonia is the Greek word. It refers to like-heartedness. Christian fellowship or true friendship is really what's... It's based in this same desire to want to be true worshipers. Recognizing that God alone is deserving of true worship. And we get that term true worship from John 4 where Jesus says, The, fire desi- the Father desires true worship. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And so true worshipers desire God to receive true worship and not just from themselves, but they want God to receive true worship from everybody because that's what he's worthy of. And in this final section of Colossians, Paul illuminates the critical importance of friendship in the Christian life. And this is seen in the the multiple friends that he lists and addresses here. But it's also seen in their mutual care for one another and the church at Colossae in Laodicea. And so wanting to be good students of the Bible, it's it's worth asking, why is this section here? We need to answer that question. Why is it here? Because 2 Timothy chapter 3 says, All Scripture is given by God and profitable for teaching, for proof, and 
correction and training in righteousness. So how does this help us? How does it tie in with the rest of the book? Well, recall that the main reason that Paul wrote the book of Colossians, this letter to that church, was to emphasize that all they needed was Christ. Christ alone is all they need. And now, on account of that, their identity is really wrapped up in Christ. His death becomes their death. His resurrection becomes their resurrection. His life is now their life. And so recognizing that Christ is now who they fundamentally are radically diverts their attention from off themselves and onto other people. How they can serve Christ and how they can help other people recognize the worth of Christ. And we're saved not just to become individual followers of Christ, we see, but we're saved and we become part of the body of Christ. We become part of a family, God's family. And so we need one another. God has saved us not just to be individuals, but to be part of a body. Friendship is fundamental to our identity as Christians. And not only is it fundamental to our identity, it's critical for us to grow. We need one another in order to grow up spiritually. We need the word, we need prayer, and we need fellowship in order to grow. And it's also critical for us to remain faithful to Christ. And so in this last section, Paul is just expressing his and his friends' concern for the Colossians. Again, Paul now lives to help others grow in their in their relationship with the Lord, grow in their convictions. That's his whole life's devoted to. And these friends that he's listed, listing here are devoted to the same ends. And he wants these churches that he's writing to to also be devoted to the same ends because they don't live for themselves anymore, but they live for Christ. And therefore, they should be intimately concerned with one another. And he mentions eight different friends as he closes out this letter. He mentions Tychicus, Onesimus, Aristarchus, Mark, Jesus Justice, Epaphras, Luke, Demas. And he mentions how these men are critical to even his comfort and well-being. Look at verse 7 where he first mentions Tychicus. He says, Tychicus will tell you about all my activities. And he goes on to describe Tychicus in three terms. He calls him a beloved brother, a faithful servant, diakonos, where we get the word deacon, and a fellow slave, doulos. And just consider, if, if your friends were to describe you in three words, how would they describe you? Paul describes him as a beloved brother, faithful servant, fellow slave. And Chichikos really is a remarkable man. He actually appears to be one of Paul's closest associates. And he's the man that Paul first chooses to go in somebody else's place, in his place or to replace another pastor. He's mentioned five times in the New Testament. Uh, other texts inform us that he was actually originally from Ephesus. And he was one of the few men who accompanied Paul on his trip to Jerusalem to give them financial relief. He was also prison, and he was the one that Paul sent 
both to Ephesus and to Colossae in order to encourage the saints there. Look at it. It says right here, have, I have sent him to you for this very purpose. He's the man I know that can accomplish this, that you would know how we are and that he would encourage your hearts. I know you guys need encouragement. I care about you. I want you to be encouraged. So I'm going to send Tychicus because he'll get the job done because he's faithful. He's an encourager. And according to 2 Timothy 4.12, it appears that he was also sent out by Paul to replace Timothy. Also, when he asked Titus to come to him, he sends Tychicus to replace Titus. I mean, he's, the, he's his right-hand man. There's also a good chance that he's the brother mentioned by Paul in 2 Corinthians 8.18 that Paul describes this way, who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. I mean, Paul is clearly confident about his ability to encourage the other saints there. To strengthen their hearts. He was the kind of man whose just mere presence was an encouragement. I sure hope that you guys have people like that in your life. Where you've been in places where you're just downhearted and the mere presence of one of your friends just makes all the difference in the world. Well, Tychicus was one of those guys. When he shows up, problems seem smaller, fears are quenched, tensions in relationships are just eased. He was like one of those veteran athletes who's more than willing to be a bench player, to just go wherever he's needed. He's there on, not for his own aggrandizement, but he's there to serve the team. He would say, here I am, Paul, send me wherever you need me. He's truly, he was truly a friend that was defined by his faithfulness. It's worth asking, is that, is that something your friends would say about you? Onesimus is the next one he mentions. Onesimus is kind of a, a diamond in the rough, as I would describe him. Similar to Tychicus, he's described also as a faithful and beloved brother. But unlike Tychicus... It's interesting, he's not described as a servant or a slave, which is surprising because that's exactly what Onesimus actually was. He was a slave to Philemon, who was a, a leader in the Colossian church. And in fact, that's why Onesimus is going back to Colossae. Paul is sending him back because he, was, he, he actually fled from Philemon and he met Paul. And Paul is the one who is actually apparently shared with him the gospel and he repents and is saved. And now Paul is sending him back to his master. That's why he's returning. And he's probably the one who is going to deliver the letter of Philemon. And we'll look at that letter in just a few weeks. In fact, look at what Paul says in that letter in Philemon. Verses 10 through 13, 10 through 12. He says, I appeal to you, he's speaking to Philemon, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment, suggesting he led him to the Lord with that language. Verse 11, formerly he was useless to you, but now indeed he is useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart, he says. Now, the, the reason he uses that, that, that description of Onesimus as being useless is because the word Onesimus actually means useful. So he's, he's playing on his name and he's saying, he used to be useless to you. 
But he's now been radically changed by the work of Christ in his heart. And not just, he's not going to be useful just to his master. He's useful to Paul. Paul says, I'm sending you my very heart. I mean, that just, just shows, once again, the power of the gospel. We heard the power of the gospel already in the two testimonies we heard this morning. But we see it here in the life of Onesimus as well. Once a useless slave, and now he's defined by his usefulness. When people put their trust in Christ to save them from their sin, from their sin they're not just choosing to believe in something. Something much, more, much greater is actually going on. Their hearts are transformed. That's why they believe. They believe because their heart has changed. As it says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is now a new creation. They become a, they're, they're given a new heart, a circumcised heart. Their heart has changed. Once they were slaves to sin, now they're slaves to righteousness. They want to live for Christ and His glory and no longer for themselves. Again, Onesimus, once the formerly useless slave, is now preciously useful even to the Apostle Paul. And according to tradition, supported by ancient manuscripts, Onesimus, the slave, eventually became the pastor of the church at Ephesus. And he became the pastor when Timothy was martyred. And one of the earliest church fathers, Ignatius, describes him in his letter to that church as a man of inexpressible love. Again, the transformation of Onesimus by the gospel demonstrates that some of the most faithful Christians and even the best friends that you might ever have in your life might right now be diamonds in the rough. Not very impressive. Maybe not even, maybe they're not even saved yet. Or maybe they just are weak, doubting, struggling in one way or another. We need to remember the power of Christ to transform people, not just to save them, but to sanctify them, to grow them up. And so we need to invest in people with an eye, not just to what they are, but what they could be through the power of Christ. So often we just evaluate people by what we see now. But if you were to look at history, you would see that often the most, the most stalwart Christians, the ones who had the greatest impact, well, at one point, just disappointments. Just think of the apostles. I mean, they were all failures. I mean, they were with Christ for three years, constantly blundering. Even Peter. Right? He failed his final exam. In fact, they all did. They all split. Peter denied Christ three times. And yet Jesus never gave up on any of them. Reminds me of Desmond Doss. He was a conscientious objector in World War II. He enlisted in the army as a medic. But he didn't believe it was in line with his Christian convictions. He was a Seventh-day Adventist, I believe. He didn't believe it was right for him to, to kill another man. So he became a medic. But on account of his convictions, that five foot six inch medic was ostracized by the soldiers in his unit. He was mocked. He was ridiculed. He was given extra duty, bullied. Those soldiers in his unit cursed him and ostracized him. And nevertheless, 
during the fierce battle on the island of Okinawa, he saved the lives of 75 of those same men while under constant machine gun fire. And for his courage, he was awarded our nation's highest honor, the Congressional Medal of Honor. And it just reminds us that 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 person that right now you just despise. You just think this guy's this person, this girl's worthless. They'll never amount to anything. In the power of Christ, that person may become your greatest friend, your greatest ally in the period of your darkest need. And we need to invest in one another with an eye, not just to what a person currently is, but what they could be in the power of Christ. The next person Paul mentions is Aristarchus. He's described as a fellow prisoner. He's, he's a fellow sufferer with Paul. Now, Aristarchus is, again, one of those lesser known and yet probably one of Paul's closest friends. He was a native of Thessalonica and regularly accompanied Paul on his various travels and missionary journeys. He was actually one of the men who was seized by the mob of Ephesians in Acts chapter 19, along with Gaius. And his description here as a fellow prisoner suggests that not only was he Paul's companion, was he with Paul, but he was actually a prisoner with Paul. So not only was he just visiting Paul, he was in chains with him. And so Aristarchus was truly a battlefield companion of Paul's. He wasn't a fair weather friend that as long as things were going well for Paul, he was getting respect, he was getting support. He would be alongside to join in the perks. No, he was going to be with Paul through thick and thin. He suffered some of the same ill treatment as the apostle did, and he probably endured the same trials that Paul lists in 2 Corinthians 11. Let me just read them to you. He says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, Danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. And if this guy was with Paul, as we see frequently he is in the, in the book of Acts, he probably went through those very same things, at least many of them. With Paul. And so it should come as no surprise that Aristarchus, just like Paul, was martyred in Rome, maybe right before, right after Paul, when Paul was executed by Nero. I think one of the most touching scenes in Tolkien's The Fellowship of the Ring is when Frodo's hobbit friends find out that he's going on this dangerous journey and he's trying to leave without them knowing. He's trying to sneak off in the night. And so they confront him in this. Here's part of the conversation. It depends on what you want, put in Mary. You can trust us to stick to you through thick and thin to the bitter end. And you can trust us to keep any secret of yours closer than you keep it yourself. 
But you cannot trust us to let you face trouble alone and go off without a word. We're your friends, Frodo. Anyway, there it is. We know most of what Gandalf has told you. We know a good deal about the ring. We're horribly afraid, but we're coming with you. We're following you like hounds. Proverbs 18.24 says, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Aristarchus was such a friend. He next mentions Mark and Jesus' justice. This is the same Mark who wrote the third gospel. And it appears from the gospel accounts that uh, it was Mark's house, or the house of his parents at least, where Jesus met for the Last Supper with his disciples. In Acts, we're told that that same house became a gathering place for the early church. And most likely, Mark was the young man that's described in Mark 14:51, who fled away without his clothes when Jesus was captured in the Garden of Gethsemane. And as it says here in Colossians, Mark was also the cousin of Barnabas, Paul's well-known traveling companion. And of course, this is the same Mark whose presence led to the separation between Paul and Barnabas in Acts 15. Apparently in that situation, Paul was so disgusted with Mark that it was enough for him to separate about Mark from his good friend. Mark, it said, had fallen away or wasn't willing to go on some journey. And so that relationship was dissolved. Barnabas went with Mark and Paul went with Silas. And it's about 11 years that passed before Mark's again mentioned. In fact, the next time he's mentioned is here in Colossians. And what it says here is that Paul's perception of Mark has clearly changed. Verse 11, he says that Mark has been a comfort to him. And the transformation of their friendship is further evidence in 2 Timothy, where he tells Timothy, get Mark and bring him because he's useful to me. Many people believe that the transformation in Mark was actually on account of Mark's friendship with Peter. Because in Peter's epistle, 1 Peter uh, chapter 5, verse 13, Peter calls him his son, suggesting that, that Peter had a profound influence, maybe even leading him to, to faith in Christ. So Mark is clearly a different man now. And rather than running away as he had done in times past, he's with Paul in his imprisonment. And, and Mark actually retained his courage for the rest of his life. He eventually became the first pastor of the church in Alexandria, Egypt. And that's where he was eventually martyred. And he was martyred by being dragged to pieces by a, a crowd of, uh, by a mob after he confronted them in their idolatry. Mark here is a comfort to markets, or sorry, a comfort to Paul, along with justice, who's also mentioned. Paul says they're the only Jewish companions here. That's what he means by men of the circumcision. But they're also precious, not just because they're fellow Jews, because they're a comfort. In fact, this is the only time in the New Testament where this, this word for comfort is used. 
It's actually a medical term. That means solace, relief, a balm. Uh, Our term paragoric, which means to be a, a pain reliever, actually comes from it. What Paul is saying is good friends bring relief to pain. They don't add to it like Job's friends. They seek to provide whatever relief they can when they see a friend hurting. It could be practical help. It could just be a listening ear. It could be godly counsel. And honestly, brothers and sisters, the presence of good friends is often far more powerful than drugs to bring a person out of discouragement, depression, or even physically. Some of you experience the power of such friends. Arguably, the two most famous men in Pacific Northwest history were William Clark and Mary Weather Lewis, whose friendship is actually documented in Stephen Ambrose's book, Undaunted Courage. In that book, Ambrose writes this, Friends will go hungry for each other, freeze for each other, die for each other. At its height, friendship is an ecstasy. For Lewis and Clark, it was an ecstasy and the critical factor in their great success. But after they returned from their famous voyage, things were not so ecstatic for Meriwether Lewis. He fell into a bout of severe depression. And he was convinced eventually that the only way he could find relief from his pain and depression would be to visit his close friend, William Clark. During his journey to meet Clark, however, that depression just continued to worsen. And three times he attempted to take his life. And during that time, his servant said that he, that that Lewis constantly or frequently thought he heard Clark coming. And he thought that that Clark would come to bring him relief from his pain. But Clark never did show up. And in the intensity of his discouragement, Lewis attempted a third time to take his life and succeeded. Life is hard. And it's full of pain. And that's why we need one another. To bring comfort to one another. Don't don't underestimate the power of comfort you can be for a person who's in the depths of despair. We need to be such friends in the midst of heartache. Mark and Jesus' justice were such friends. Next he mentions Epaphras, a like-minded laborer of his. It's interesting, of all Paul's friends mentioned here, Epaphras is the one that garners the most attention. And this is probably just because of his relationship with the Colossian church. He was probably the pastor of the Colossian church who had come to Paul to encourage Paul, to give news of the church. He was definitely the one who had planted the church. We see that in Colossians 1, 7. And here he's described as a servant of Christ who labors in both prayer and hard work. I think Paul's description is fitting for a fellow pastor because it it shows his clear intent in prayer and labor is to bring about the maturity of fellow believers. 
That's his ambition. And this is perfectly in line with Paul's ambition in ministry as seen in Colossians 1.28. To present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that powerfully works within me. Right? Just like Paul, Epaphras labored with all his energy, not just in preaching, not just in teaching, but even when he couldn't preach and teach, he kept praying. Right? One, of the, one of the signs that a person, I think, is called to ministry isn't just that they have the ability to teach, but it's they are so burdened for the growth of other individuals that they devote themselves to praying for them. Whether people know they're praying for them or not. Because that's what drives them. It's not just about being in front of people, being respected, being liked. It's about serving people so they grow spiritually, which happens not just when we teach, not just when we counsel, but largely through prayer. And Epaphras didn't just merely pray. And notice how it describes it. He labored in prayer because he wasn't with them. But he still cared for them. Just so similar to the Apostle Paul. And I think clearly what made Paul and Epaphras such good friends was their like-minded dedication to the same ends. And don't misunderstand the unity here. Epaphras' loyalty wasn't to Paul. I mean, often you hear spiritual leaders talk about the need to have loyalty. Loyalty is not a bad thing. But our loyalty, if it's going to be good, needs to be because we're focused on the same goal. Our loyalty is ultimately to Christ. Right? And if our loyalty to Christ would be compromised by loyalty to another individual, we need to be disloyal to another individual. True Christian friendship goes beyond loyalty to one another because... It's so intent on faithfulness to Christ. Like that's what united Paul and Epaphras. They wanted to see Christ exalted. It wasn't just about maintaining respect and loyalty to one another. Paul then mentions also Luke, who I like to describe as a humble helper. He's simply described here as a beloved physician. This is the same Luke that, that wrote the gospel according to Luke and the book of Acts. And here he's mentioned as a physician. And his writing demonstrates that he actually had remarkable literary gifts. He was a great historian. He was also had rich theology in how he articulated biblical truth. I mean, he really was a first-rate scholar. And he was, I think, on par academically with the Apostle Paul. In fact, his, his Greek writing is, is the most difficult, most highly complex of all the writings in the New Testament. He was a first-rate scholar, but he was also a first-rate friend. John A. Scott, who wrote a book on the, the person of Luke, a Christian scholar, writes this about Luke in the closing words of his book. He said, Without Luke's help as a physician... As a companion and friend, Paul could never have carried his heavy load in the Christian ministry. And without Luke's pen, the same grave that covered Paul's body would have also covered his name. 
That is eye-opening. And he says that largely because most likely Luke was Paul's amanuensis, his secretary who wrote Paul's letters for him. Scholars believe Paul had eye trouble and, and therefore didn't write most of his letters. He had them dictated. Maybe he would sign some. And Luke was always with him, his personal physician, keeping him going. Yet despite his remarkable gifts and intelligent, intelligence, Luke was content just to play a supporting role. In fact, we might not even know about Luke except for the few times he's mentioned and the fact that there's a gospel named after him. He could have, he could have made a name for himself, but he was content to use his gifts for the glory of Christ. And because he was, the church has been deeply blessed on account of it for centuries. The next person he mentions is Demas. I describe as a fair weather friend. All he says is here is that Demas greets the Colossian church. Demas is mentioned three times in the New Testament. Here in Colossians, again in Philemon. The third time he's mentioned, however, is in 2 Timothy 4.10, where it's not in a good light. Paul says there that Demas deserted him because of his love of the present world. Many scholars believe that this description of Demas suggests that Demas fell away from Christ, that he was an apostate, a fake believer. And on account of, they say this on account of what 1 John 2 says, where the Apostle John says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. But because this is all Paul says about Demas, even in 2 Timothy, and he doesn't say anything more, I tend to think that Demas, like Peter in the courtyard and then Mark also in the Garden of Gethsemane, Demas just simply fell into temptation and a moment of weakness. We don't know. It's difficult to ascertain what motivated Demas to desert from Paul. Was he never really a believer? Was it just falling in weakness? All, we, all we're told is this description that he left Paul because he had a love of this world. could have been that he feared for his life. He was worried about his reputation if he was seen with a prisoner. could have been that he just had a financial opportunity, a job opportunity to open up. It's not a bad thing. Could have been that he wanted to, to return to family. Or maybe just to start a family. Maybe he had a, a girl in Thessalonica. We don't know. But there was something that appeared to him more beneficial than to remain with Paul and to be faithful. There was something in this world that was more attractive to him than faithfulness to Christ. And so he left him. And Demas' inclusion here, I think, just reminds us that there's going to be friends that fail us. Because we're flesh and blood. We're all tempted by sin. Even your closest friends may fail you. Just as the hymn writer eloquently puts it, friends may fail me, Foes assail me, but he, my Savior, makes me whole. 
Hallelujah. What a Savior. Saving, helping, keeping, loving. He is with me to the end. So we need to remember that even if our best friends fail us, the Lord will never leave us, nor will He ever forsake us. Our hope is not ultimately in our friends. It's in our Lord and Savior. Paul then closes with this, his letter with some final instructions. He basically tells the Colossians to do four things here. And all of which, I think, affirm the nature of true friendship again. He just keeps this theme of caring for one another as a church. Not just, not just even for the people in your church, but all Christians everywhere we see. First, he tells them to greet the Laodiceans. A different church, different town. But greet them. Paul's demonstrating not just that he has affection for the believers in Colossae, by the way, which he's never met, but also these believers in Laodicea and in all the churches. Right? He, he assumes the people in these churches should share the same affection for one another. They're close to you. Greet them, help them, support them. In fact, he says next, read letters, read the letters, read their letter that I sent to them. And have them read the letter I sent to you. Build one another up. Share resources. Don't just care about your own growth. They're too part of the body of Christ. Right? There, there, should be, there, there should be no competition within churches. Right? That's strife. The biblical word for competition, by the way, is strife. Trying to outdo one another out of pride. We're not in competition with one another here. Who can be the holiest? Who can be the what most liked? We're in competition to see everyone grow in Christ-likeness. Competition against sin, not against one another's growth. Paul says, serve one another. Care for one another. He says, thirdly, exhort Ar- Ar- sorry, Archippus. Right, we have no idea who Archippus is. But he was clearly given a specific responsibility, a ministry. The phrase fulfill your ministry suggests that he was probably one of the pastors of one of those churches. Because this is the same exhortation Paul gives to Timothy. At the very end of Timothy, he says, see that you fulfill your ministry. Fourthly, he says, remember my chains. Last request. It just demonstrates Paul, Paul's desire for these Christians who he's never met, to remember him. Remember his suffering. Remember his care for them. And I think implied in this is that they would remember him in prayer. And I think that's helpful because honestly, we, we, even ourselves, we tend to just get focused on our issues, what we're going to make for dinner, how we're going to make ends meet financially, uh, all the things that we have to accomplish at work, the stresses in our lives. We're often so focused on our own issues, our own problems, that, that those who are enduring far greater suffering for our benefit are often forgotten by us. And the one thing that we can do to help those fellow sufferers is to pray for them. And yet it's easy to forget. We were just reminded in our community group on Wednesday, got an email from a, a, a missionary that I, that I met in seminary of just some powerful things that are going on in the country of Ukraine, but just heartbreaking too. 
We have brothers and sisters throughout the world that we need to remember in prayer. Because they're part of our body. Part of the body of Christ. Friends, don't forget the plight of friends. In E.B. White's Charlotte's Web, Charlotte the, the spider, if you're familiar with the story, saves the life of Wilbur the pig. And she does so because she's able to do through some fantastic artistry. She, she writes words in her web. And those words are enough to impress the owner of the pig to keep him alive. And at one point, Wilbur asks her why she does this for him. He says, why do you do all this for me? I don't deserve it. I've never done anything for you. You've been my friend, replied Charlotte. And that in and of itself is a tremendous thing. May God bless you with such friends. And may God bless you to be such friends. Let's pray. God bless us with such friends and bless us to be such friends to one another. Father, I want to begin just by confession and repentance that I have not been the friend that I need to be. And I pray that You would help me and my brothers and sisters to be better for the friends that we see and the friends that we don't see. That we would be a comfort to one another in darkness. That we would labor in prayer for one another. Lord, that we would be faithful to the same goals, the same tasks. Father, You you know us. Lord, You know our need for greater friends. And You know how we need to be greater friends. Father, You've been gracious to our church to bring so many wonderful people to gather together to become united in purpose. Lord, don't let us fail one another. Help us to be the friends we need to be so that You would be exalted and so that your church would grow up into Christ's likeness. We ask these things in Christ's name.